Let me invite you to turn to the Acts of the Apostles once more tonight, and we'll begin reading in a few moments in chapter 24. Acts chapter 24, and we'll read in a few moments at verse 1. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you on this missions week for this book that reminds us of the great missionary task and the great effort and success of Paul and his companions. God, as we come tonight to see some of the difficult results of that missionary effort. I pray that we would be stirred nevertheless uh, to venture all for the sake of the gospel. Teach us tonight, we pray, from this chapter. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we read uh, in Acts 24, let me just catch us up to speed again on where we are in the timeline of the book of Acts. Paul has recently wrapped up his third missionary journey, preaching Jesus far and wide and seeing great missionary success, great gospel success, particularly among the Gentiles. And now he's come to Jerusalem where he gives a missionary report to the elders of the church there and where he has been desiring to be in town, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. But when he gets there, uh, he faces difficulty, some suspicion from within the church, as we've seen, and great opposition from without the church as the crowds in Jerusalem are stirred up against him. Uh, We read that some Jews from Asia began accusing him of being anti-Israel, of being anti-Moses, and also they accused him of defiling the temple by bringing a Gentile inside. Now, we've already seen that those things weren't true, but as you know, that doesn't always seem to be important when people are stirred up against someone. And these crowds were so stirred up that they tried to beat Paul to death in the streets, and but for the Roman military intervention, they may have succeeded. And yet, when the Roman military intervened, Paul was allowed to make a defense before his accusers, before this angry mob. And surprisingly, as we saw, they listened to him as he shared his testimony of how Jesus met him and blinded him and saved him on the road to Damascus. And they continued to listen to him as Paul explained how Jesus had called him to preach. But when Paul intimated that the Lord had actually called him to preach to the Gentiles, that was simply too much for the nationalism and the pride of these Jewish crowds, and they began calling for Paul's execution. And again, he is rescued by the military authorities. But on this missions week, I want you to notice this last part well before we go on. I want you to notice that the crowds in Jerusalem were so angry with Paul, it would seem not simply because he preached the gospel, but because he preached the gospel to the Gentiles. He preached the gospel to the non-Jews. He preached the gospel to those people who were far away, geographically far away, spiritually far away, ethnically far away, from themselves. Paul was persecuted, note well, not just for being a preacher, but also, and it would seem especially in this case, for being 
a missionary. Now, it's true that had these folks stopped and listened to his whole gospel message, they may have persecuted Paul for that too. In other words, they may have persecuted him for preaching the gospel to Jews if they'd given him more of a chance to explain what the gospel was. The other apostles certainly were persecuted for preaching Christ to their own people. And yet, while that is true, while the gospel itself brings persecution, it's also worth noting in the book of Acts that these crowds in Jerusalem particularly didn't like the missionary tone of Paul's gospel. They didn't like that he was preaching to the heathen. They didn't like to think that God might actually love the pagans too and that they might be included in his plan of redemption. And I point that out to you as a warning to us for the present day. This is Missions Week, and so we find ourselves this week talking a good bit, for instance, about the Muslims, about the Hindus, about the Chinese, about the European secularists, and so on. All groups of people whom we might be tempted to be nervous about or afraid of or to look down on or even to demonize. We might be tempted, in other words, to mutter under our breath, I don't see why people get so excited about sending missionaries off to those communists and those Muslims and those humanists. We're better off just focusing on our own country and on our own people. Some of you may have thought that before, maybe even this week. Or when somebody's not specifically talking about missions, when we're not thinking in spiritual terms, as though there were times when we ought not to be, but when we're not thinking in spiritual terms, it may be your default position to think that all those other peoples and nations are really quite beneath the good old U.S. of A. But there are two problems with that line of thinking, at least two. One is that the U.S. of A may be old, but I think we'd be hard-pressed to continue to call it good. Just travel overseas and see the smut and the materialism and the false doctrine that our country promotes worldwide, and you might begin to wish that some of those other folks would begin to send missionaries here. But the other thing that's wrong with kicking against the goads of international missions is that it sounds so much like the proud and nationalistic mobs in Jerusalem in the latter chapters of Acts. They thought they were superior. They wanted God to love only them. They had no room in their theology for the idea that God might want to save the heathens also. And so I warn you to beware of that kind of thinking. Rather, to look at the heathens and to say, as we sang just a moment ago, lost without Jesus. Do I not care that by millions they die? That ought to be our thought when we look at the ends of the earth. Well, it was this nationalistic line of thinking that caused problems for Paul in Jerusalem. And so after his defense before the mobs, he also had opportunity to explain himself before the Jewish council as well. But as we said a couple of weeks ago, realizing probably that he would get no fair hearing there, as the commentator Adam Clark said it. He, he realizes they're not going to give me a fair shake, and so he just shouts out, 
that he's on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And he divides the room right down the middle between the theological liberals and the conservatives. And they begin fighting it out and seem almost perhaps to forget about Paul for a moment or two. Meanwhile, a conspiracy was forming against Paul, a plot to murder him so that he, now a prisoner, had to be transferred to a different city and await another trial, which is where we find him at the end of chapter 23. And now tonight, finally, as we come to chapter 24, we'll read about that trial that took place now before the Roman governor, Felix. So read with me chapter 24, verses 1 through 9. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have, through you, attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But... That I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us, by your kindness, a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple, and and then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law, but... Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. So these Jewish leaders now have a lawyer, this man Tertullus, And after he butters up the governor a little bit, he finally gets down in verses 5 and 6 to bringing his charges. And they are basically two. First of all, he claims that Paul is a troublemaker. Verse 5, we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He's a troublemaker. And then secondly, he charges Paul with temple desecration at the beginning of verse 6. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. And then we arrested him. Well, let's just look at both of those accusations briefly, and we'll do it in reverse order. In verse 6, Tertullus accuses Paul of defiling the temple. And this is a charge that stems back to chapter 1, when the crowds in the city saw Paul with a Gentile man named Trophimus and assumed wrongly that Paul had brought this man into the temple with him when Paul himself had gone in to make a sacrifice. He's defiled the temple. He's brought a Gentile in to the temple with him. Now, if these men had taken time to understand the gospel, if they had listened to Paul's preaching if they'd believed on Christ themselves, they might not have been so upset at the thought of a Gentile coming into the temple. After all, the gospel says that it's not Jewish ethnicity that makes one a true son of Abraham or a part of the true Israel of God. It's faith in Jesus. 
And so perhaps this Trophimus, because he had faith in Jesus, was actually a more suitable occupant of God's temple than were these physical sons of Abraham who did not believe. Maybe they should have thought that through, but of course that didn't compute to these men. Neither did they do a thorough investigation of whether or not Paul had actually brought Trophimus into the temple as they thought. Acts chapter 21 indicates that he had not done so, probably because he knew how the Jews would react. So this accusation of Paul's defiling the temple not only shows that these men had shut their ears to the gospel, which is not surprising, but it's patently false. Paul had not done what they said he had done. The other accusation that's made in verse 5 is, as we said, that Paul was a troublemaker. Just read the verse again. For we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now this charge has a little more teeth to it because in many of the places where Paul preached, there was dissension among the Jewish people, wasn't there? As is the case today, the message of Jesus did not always go over well with everyone. And so there was division, there was uproar, there was danger when Paul preached the gospel in different places. And these things occurred among Jews and Gentiles both. But the question is, did Paul stir that up? as they accused him. Was it Paul's fault that there was all this dissension? Or was it the fault of the people who opposed him? Was Paul's method of proclaiming the gospel divisive in and of itself? Was his method subversive? Was he calculatedly trying to create a frenzy wherever he went? No. He simply went into a city went into the synagogue and taught the truth of the Bible, the truth about the Lord Jesus, and called people to repentance and faith. So the fact that people opposed what he said, sometimes loudly, sometimes violently, was not because of any stirring up on Paul's part. They got angry, not because Paul worked them up towards it, but simply because they hated the truth. And so again, this charge that Paul's a troublemaker, does not stick. The gospel creates division, and people's hearts respond poorly to that division, but Paul himself was not a troublemaker. The charge doesn't stick, but of course that doesn't keep the Jewish elders from making it. And maybe that's one of the lessons in all the charges and accusations that are brought against Paul in these recent chapters. Sometimes that's the way it happens to God's people. Sometimes we are falsely accused, called troublemakers, accused of breaking certain rules or codes, whether written or unwritten, accused of thinking that we're holier than thou, accused of being bigoted or narrow-minded, not because we necessarily are those things, but because the gospel that we proclaim or maybe the purity with which we live that gospel out rubs people the wrong way and the best defense against the message is to try and discredit the messenger, right? 
Let's also, however, just be honest for a moment and say that sometimes people's accusations against us may be right. Sometimes, sadly, Christians can be pugilistic or arrogant or prejudiced or unlawful in their behavior, and we mustn't pretend to be martyrs when we really have brought people's ire down upon our own heads. But I think the lesson here is that we mustn't be surprised either if people, in an attempt to drown out the gospel message, do their level best to discredit the gospel messenger. But now listen in verses 10 to 21 to how Paul makes his defense. So we've heard Tertullus's charges, now let's hear Paul's defense. Verses 10 and following. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense, since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today." Now, as with Tertullus's charges against Paul, let me summarize Paul's defense here in two simple headings. He says two basic things in response to the charges against him. First, I'm not guilty. And second, I am a Christian. I'm not guilty, but I am a Christian. That's a summary of Paul's defense. Now, let's look at both of those things as well. First, Paul asserts that he is not guilty guilty. He notes in verse 12 that he has not been about causing any riots, and he does the same thing in verses 17 and 18. I'm not a rabble-rouser, he's saying. The only thing I've done, he says in verse 21, the only provocative statement I've made is that, quote, I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. Now, that was a provocative statement, and I think Paul threw it out calculatedly back in verse 23 in order, as we said, to divide the room down the middle between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But there was no reason for the room filled with these supposedly mature, dignified men, there was no reason for it to have erupted into a fracas because of it, which is what it did. Paul was highlighting a disagreement, but the melee that ensued, again, was the fault of the combatants, not of this man who's on trial. 
So Paul asserts, first of all, he's not guilty of the charges being brought against him. He's not a rabble-rouser, and he challenges his accusers to prove otherwise. But note well that Paul not only says, I'm not guilty, but that he also affirms, but I am a Christian. Verses 13 and 14, Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me, but this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers. I'm not guilty, verse 13, but I am a Christian, verse 14. That's what the way means. It's, it was an early moniker for Christianity. I am a part of the way. I do serve the God of our fathers according to the way. I am a Christian. And I, I want you to see that, and I want you to note it as important Because so many times when we are pressured because of our faith, when we find ourselves on trial, as it were, when we find ourselves in defense mode because of the gospel, so many times I say we may be tempted to soft-pedal the gospel, to soft-pedal our faith, to soft-pedal Jesus. We may be tempted to disclaim certain biblical truths, or even, like Peter, to disclaim Jesus himself. I wonder if you've ever been tempted to do something like that. Someone begins to question you about a certain matter of the Christian faith, and you feel backed into a little bit of a corner, and you're tempted to continue to back up. Well, I mean, you know, it's not really like you're saying. I mean, I'm not really, like, totally dogmatic about creation versus evolution. And... You know, I agree with you. There's probably room for debate concerning, concerning sexual ethics and morality. And, and, and when I say Jesus is the only way to God, I'm not trying exactly to say that all those Hindus and Muslims are going to hell without him. I think most of us have probably been tempted to do that, to fudge on what we believe, on what the Bible says. Maybe not always or in the face of every kind of questioning or every questioner, but let the right person begin to paint us into a corner, someone we admire, someone that we think is smarter than us, someone who has power over us in some way, and we may be tempted to waffle on plain biblical truths. And so we can learn from Paul's courage here. He could have soft-pedaled this situation simply by saying, I'm a good Jew. I read the same Bible as these fellows do. I serve the same God as they do. And he does say those things. But he also says, This I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers. I am a follower of Jesus. I am a Christian. He's not ashamed to nail his colors to the mast. And I encourage that kind of courage upon you come what may never be afraid to admit i am a christian and to claim all the luggage that goes with that name after all jesus stood for you at the bar of god's justice and so should you not stand for him at the bar of human justice or scrutiny certainly you should 
Now, just notice one other thing as an aside about Paul's response to his accusers. He pleads not guilty and yet unashamedly owns that he is a Christian. But notice how in verses 14 and 15, Paul asserts that Christianity or the way is, is really a continuation of the Old Testament faith. He does not say that in order to serve God according to the way that he's had to abandon the law and the prophets or that he has discovered a new God or a new hope, verse 15. No. For Paul, serving God according to the way and continuing to hold fast to the Old Testament scriptures and the Old Testament hope and the Old Testament God were one and the same thing. He was not becoming un-Jewish in order to be Christian. He was simply continuing on with the unfolding plan of redemption revealed bit by bit to his forefathers in the Old Testament and now flung wide open, as it were, in the clarity of the new. Christianity, in other words, is not a new religion. It's simply the blossoming into full flower of the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Elijah and so on. Now, Paul makes that point here in chapter 24 as part of his defense against the suspicion that he's anti-Jewish. Far from it, he says in verses 14 and 15, I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And verse 15, I have a hope in God which these men cherish themselves. So Paul brings this up to answer charges against him, but the application for us, I think, is simply that we learn to see the Bible as Paul sees it, not as two distinct books for two distinct people, Israel and the church, but as one unfolding whole, as teaching one unified faith once for all handed down to the saints. By faith, we are sons of Abraham. We should learn to read the Bible in that way. We should learn to see the richness of the Old Testament as for us, too, just as it was for the great apostle in Acts 24. So then, Paul has brought his charges, or Tertullus, excuse me, has brought his charges, and Paul has entered his plea and made his defense. But what will the judge decide? What will Governor Felix do with the case that has been brought before him? Tertullus's charges, Paul's defense, Felix's decision. Let's listen in in verses 22 through 27. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later... Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewish, a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. 
Now, the thing that stands out to me most about this man, Felix, the thing that stands out to me most about Felix's decision is that he actually didn't make any decision at all. The thing that stands out most about Felix is his indecisiveness. He's indecisive, first of all, about what he should do with Paul, isn't he? The charges that have been brought against him seem to have been followed up with no real proof, and yet Felix cannot bring himself to drop the gavel and say not guilty and let Paul go. And so he leaves Paul in custody for a full two years. Yes, with great privileges, verse 23, which was a kindness, but still Paul is in custody. That's according to the providence of God. We can see sort of standing back from it, but from Felix's vantage point, what's he doing? Keeping a man in custody who is clearly not proven guilty. And yet he does leave him in custody. And he does so, verse 27, even when he goes out of office as a favor to the Jews. Maybe that's why he didn't pronounce Paul not guilty in the first place. His politics with the Jews got in the way of his sense of justice. And we can be like that sometimes if we're not careful. We can be more concerned as as the title of the book puts it, to win friends and influence people than we are to do what's right. Beware of that kind of Felix-like indecisiveness. But notice also, even more damning, how Felix was indecisive as to what he should do, not only about Paul, but what he should do about Jesus. We were told in verse 22 that Felix had a more exact knowledge about the way. That seems to have been part of what kept him from condemning Paul outright. He understood where Paul was coming from, but he also wanted to please the Jews, and so he couldn't make up his mind about this case. He couldn't make up his mind about Paul. But now I'm saying he also couldn't make up his mind about Jesus. This more exact knowledge about the way which Felix possessed means that he had evidently heard Christian preaching and teaching before. And he had come to some significant knowledge about Christ and about Christianity and about the gospel, all of which is good. But he'd not yet stepped over the line. He'd not put his faith in this Jesus. He'd not joined the way himself. He knew about it. But he hadn't come to faith in Christ. But now he has another opportunity. Because God has dropped into his lap the case of this Christian preacher. One of the most significant and influential of all Christian preachers. And Felix now has this man in custody, verse 23. Access to him whenever he calls. And he does call for him in verse 24. And he hears him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. It almost sounds... In verse 24, like Felix is a little bit interested in what Paul has to say, doesn't it? We're not told that directly, but surely Felix, who had a more exact knowledge about the way, knew when he summoned Paul for a visit, surely he had an inkling about what the preacher was going to say to him. And I think he was probably curious to hear it. 
He's interested. And yet, when Paul begins speaking in verse 25 about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix shuts him down and says he'll call Paul back some other time. He's still a little bit interested, it would appear. He's still thinking that maybe someday he'll give this Christianity another hearing. And yet he's not interested enough to keep listening today. Not interested enough to actually repent and believe. And I just wonder if there's anyone in the room tonight who is in that position. Maybe some of you children. Maybe some of you adults, too. Interested in Jesus. And you think that probably someday you'll really take the time to think and pray and decide about him. But not tonight. You're not ready to decide for him now. You're like Felix, maybe. You know enough about Jesus to be saved. You've heard him preach as clearly as Felix had done, but you're still putting off the decision, still indecisive about letting go of your sin or letting go of what others will think of you. You're still indecisive about siding with Jesus once and for all. And if that's you tonight, adults or children, I plead with you. In the words of the Old Testament, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So today, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Jesus lived for us, tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus died for us, bearing our sins in his body on the cross. And Jesus is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This Jesus loved you all the way until death. So be indecisive no more. Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. And maybe there are others of us who are no longer indecisive about whether to believe on Christ in the first place. But there may be some of us who are still waffling about whether or not we're going to obey him in one area or other of discipleship. I just wonder for you tonight if there's something that you know the Lord is calling you to do, but you're putting it off like Felix in verse 25 to, quote, when I find time. When I find time, I'll listen to the Lord and follow through on what he's saying. And if that's you, in the words of Elijah, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Maybe there's some sin that you simply must let go of. Do it today. Don't wait until you find time. Cut off your hand today. Tear out the eye that causes you to sin today. There's a little bit of Felix in all of us, isn't there? A little bit of procrastination, indecisiveness, putting off sometimes that which is most vitally important. But let's be done with it. Let's be Felix no more. And whatever it is for you tonight, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve.